You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 153.1. If you've been with us a while, you know that we've got two hosts whenever we've got a decimal point in the episode number. And one of those hosts this morning is Dr. Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you doing this morning, Michael? Oh, I'm all right. I'd like to apologize to our listeners for not having an episode for six weeks. Yeah, well... And I would like and, and, to further apologize for the way this is going to sound. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the gremlins are uh, biting this January. Uh, the other host is myself, of course, Nathan Gilmore. I am an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And this is a listener feedback episode. So rather than do a long intro, we'll go ahead and start talking to folks. And actually, I lied. I'm going to do a little bit of intro now that we have lots of listeners, which is a great situation to be in, we do uh, dedicated listener feedback episodes rather than trying to do that at the beginning of each episode. And Michael's going to lead off from our friend Jeff. I am summarizing this email. Uh, listeners who have heard our previous listener feedback episodes know I'm very, very bad at summarizing emails. So. <laughs> He says that he started listening to us after uh, our Good News for Anxious Christian episodes, and then he listened to the ones that he thought would be interesting, and then he listened to all of them, which is nice. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the question he has involves our Lovecraft episode, and uh, particularly my reference to Karl Barth in it. Um, we, we mentioned this, this idea that Cthulhu, like Barth's God, is wholly other, um, and... and we moved on rather quickly from it, as we as we tend to do. Uh, mm-hmm. So he uh, he wants us to explain a little bit more. Um, uh, so he has some questions. How can or ought human beings to conceive of the inconceivable if the creator God of the universe is himself inconceivable? A good question. You do, keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. What is Bart's idea of a being that is wholly other? And um, because I'm reading this out loud, I will say that's H-O-L-Y, other. Does this mean that mortal minds break at the sight of God, as Exodus and Call of Cthulhu both suggest? Do you get the sense that Lovecraft was intentionally undermining the Christian narrative by taking the loving and wholly other God and treating it for an indifferent and wholly other God? That's the W-H poetry and an overactive imagination. So let's take these questions one by one. Nathan, how can we or ought we to conceive of the inconceivable if the creator God of the universe is himself inconceivable? Well, it's interesting, the uh, the notion of mystery within theology and then apophatic theology, the, the practice of saying what God is not, uh, I think is definitely a healthy part of the historical Christian theological tradition. Uh, I certainly don't want to gainsay it. One thing I will say is that I always want to hold that in tension, sort of a dialectic tension with 
the revealed character of God. In other words, uh, we wouldn't know that there is an agent uh, that doesn't want fully to be described unless that agent had at least in part disclosed that agent's self. Uh, and that's a lot of pronouns and abstract nouns. Point is that, you know, we have to remember that it is, to a large extent, God who discloses God's own inability to be grasped. So in that respect, uh, I'd say that there's a departure there in the in the Lovecraft mythos in that the religions that rise up around Cthulhu uh, seem to be rooted largely in sort of empirical observations of some sort of body in space rather than the agency of Yahweh, Adonai, whatever you want to call the God of the Old Testament, coming to a people and saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. Um, do you think that distinction is a valid one, Michael? Yeah, I do think that's valid. And, and furthermore, I think that is what Bart would say as well. I mean, uh, among other things, he he is a Calvinist. And so th this notion that any self-revelation from God is going to have to go downward is, from my understanding, a Bartian concept. So I, absolutely, mm -hmm. I think I think that's the distinction between Bart's God and Lovecraft's, that, that one reveals itself and one does not. Reveals, reveal, I, I don't know, I, I feel weird using that it, but okay. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, moreover, and what I find fascinating is that because of that, uh, Lovecraft's, you know, ancient ones, or I, I forget what phrase it is. This is where we need grubs here, right? Uh, but Lovecraft's uh, entities, I'll just use the the Greek participle there, they are, in that sense, ultimately less other than the God of the Hebrew Bible is, because the God of the Hebrew Bible has to reveal God's self, whereas the ancient ones can be observed, if that distinction makes any sense at all. Right, yeah. The uh, I was going to say it's, it's non-empirical, but that, that's, that's going too far. Um, right, there has to be some initiative and some agency on the part of the other well, there's the, in the case of the Bible. There's the famous line in the Word of God and the Word of Man where he, where he says, there is no road, not even a... Not even a dialectical road, not even an apophatic road that will lead to God. Mm -hmm. uh, although the roads only run in the other direction. Right, right. D despite what they said one time five years ago or whatever on Christ the Center, and I got so angry I started yelling in my car. <laughs> hey, it's not like uh, Christ the Center to take pot shots at Karl Barth. Yeah, well, well especially without reading them. <laughs> <laughs> so, do mortal minds break at the sight of God as Exodus and Call of Cthulhu both suggest? Uh, you'll have to ask someone who knows better than I do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I am one who relies on the uh, testimony of the saints. Whether that's Lovecraft or Moses. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was thinking more Julian of Norwich, but yeah, that works. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I feel like that question's above my pay grade. Yeah. Do you get the sense that Lovecraft was intentionally undermining the Christian narrative, or was this a coincidence of cosmic poetry and an overactive imagination? Oh, I think he knows his Bible, if that's what you're asking. I, yeah, I think that he is, you know, creating a parallel religious reality uh, that, you know, at the very least calls into question the character of biblical narrative. I mean, is, is that the sense you get, Michael? I, I would go either way. I don't know enough about Lovecraft's biography to know... Um, what what he was intending so I, i'm fine if it's an accident of cosmic poetry all right fair enough then 
Well, I want to move on to an email from Adam. I'm going to guess it's Burrell, just because that's how that name is pronounced on the wire, and that's good enough for me. Uh, Adam, if I'm mispronouncing your name, let me know. Here's what he says, uh, and I'm summarizing again, that he enjoyed our Robin Williams triptych. Uh, he was surprised when we were talking about The Fisher King that we didn't mention Terry Gilliam's 1985 film, Brazil. And I'm quoting at this point, it is well worth the watch. And in parentheses, he writes, I think Nathan would particularly enjoy it. The farmer should not watch it before bedtime, and David will be able to maintain critical distance because Jeff Bridges is not a cast member. <laughs> so I, I think that recommends the film. I'll, I'll, sometime I'll have to take it in. That is my friend, uh, that is my friend Craig Cook's favorite movie. Oh, well, there you go. In fact, we, go. we went to a double feature of that in 12 Monkeys, but we were so hungry after 12 Monkeys. Not because of 12 Monkeys, you understand, but we were just <laughs> hungry after watching a two-and-a-half-hour movie that we did right. not stay for Brazil, so I've never seen it. Okay. He then goes on to write, Your episode made me recall my favorite Robin Williams moment, his cameo appearance in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. He provides the sword for Hamlet in the final scene and is a welcome reprieve of levity. And I'll just say, I mean, I think that happens in, what, hour seven of that movie? I, I so. don't know. You know, my wife is sitting right here. She's probably the person to ask about <laughs> Branagh's Hamlet. What do you think, Victoria, what do you think of Robin Williams' cameo in Hamlet? She says she's always enjoyed it, even though apparently there are a lot of people who don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I've got nothing against Robin Williams in that scene. It's just that, you know, by the time you get to Robin Williams, Kenneth Branagh has worn you down for, in my case, three, like three VHS tapes. I, I, have, so, I have never seen that, and, I'm, and am unlikely to do so. Oh, man, it's a, it's a bear of a Hamlet. Let me put it to, to you that way. Anyway, last bit, he talks about my experience with the Fisher King in literature prior to this episode ranged as far as Michael's, in other words, The Wasteland. It did make me consider possible future episodes. I humbly request a T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound episode or perhaps an Imagist episode. I, I, I'd be down with that. I probably wouldn't write the question set for it, but uh, I could see that happening sometime. And honestly, I could imagine an episode just on The Wasteland. Yeah, uh, we could probably do three episodes just on The Wasteland. Well, yeah, yeah. Have, you ever, that, have you ever taught The Wasteland, Nathan? Oh, goodness. I have taught uh, portions of it, but never the entire poem. Yeah, well, I was going to say, if you want to teach the whole poem, you got to dedicate a week of your class to it. When, when, I used, oh, yeah, yeah, when I used to lecture in my American Lit class, I would do, I would, I would spend the period lecturing on the first canto and then tell them to go read the other four on their own. Okay, all right. But all yes, right. I would be down for an Elliot episode. Pound I know less well, and the Imagists, I know, you know, William Carlos Williams... And, and and a couple of pound poems, but certainly Elliot, I think we could do. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, we got another email from Kristen Philippic. Listeners should know her as our press liaison and also the one who has really catapulted the Christian Humanist Profiles podcast, which you should also subscribe to uh, to the prominence it has achieved. I've really enjoyed having her on the team. But she writes this about uh, again the Robin Williams episode. Uh, hi guys, I've been enjoying the Robin Williams retrospectives this summer. A lot of my math friends were filling up Facebook with happiness that the Fields Medal had been awarded to a woman for the first time, and I ruefully realized that the only possible reason I know what the Fields Medal is is because of Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> <laughs> with regard to Dead Poets Society in particular, I remember about a decade ago when the Emperor's Club came out, a lot of people were describing it as Dead Poets Redux. Actually, I thought it shared a setting, Elite Boys Prep School, but otherwise could not be more different. Kevin Klein plays a Latin teacher who seeks to instill the great virtues of the past 
into his young charges. Our society will rise and fall based on how well we maintain those ancient virtues. At one point, he tells an errant young student who is cutting across the lawn to keep to the path, walk where the great men before you have walked. So it isn't excessively subtle either. So it does have that in common with Dead Poet Society. You didn't see much to care for the sappy teacher movies, To Serve with Love, Mr. Holland's Opus, etc. Uh, there's also the Teacher Corrupts the Youth movie, uh, Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Are there any teacher movies you actually do recommend? I think I can speak for everyone who's ever been on this podcast in saying that the best teacher movie is Dangerous Minds starring Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> that, that white woman really... You're just trying to bait me into doing Coolio. That, that white woman really goes in there and shows those inner city youths what's what, doesn't she? Oh, man. I, I've actually never seen that. That was the uh, biggest thing to watch when I was a college freshman. But... That, that is the first R-rated movie I ever saw my youth group went for some reason <laughs> to, wow. to see it yeah yeah oh okay. well michael are there any good teacher movies i am racking my brain i can't think of one i particularly like oh but there has to be right yeah one would think one would think i mean you know i i i, I want to default to like pat Morita in the karate kid but i don't know if that counts <laughs> you, you know you know uh again my wife is is saving us she she uh th- there is a french movie called uh in french it's called entre les murs but it's in 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 english it's translated to the class for some reason uh it's based on a francois begado novel and it's uh it's actually really really good i can i can recommend that one and and Uh, it is one of those inner city movies it's an inner city paris uh um and and it, it is very very uh what do you call it episodic so so there there's not really a plot that runs through it but it's a it's a very enjoyable movie and i think it gets at at some of the the fun and the frustrations of teaching. And Kristen, let me tell you this. I, I actually, because of all the uh, delays that we've had getting this episode to record, and most of them have been my fault, I actually thought about this about a week ago, but I've forgotten the thoughts I had. So I might modify the show notes before this goes live and recommend a teacher movie or two. To Sir With Love is terrible, though. I, I don't know if I said that when we did Dead Poet Society. That is a terrible t- – that is pornography I, It's for another teachers. one I've never seen, so I'll have to believe you. And the song is super creepy. <laughs> I, I forget how it goes, but it's something like, what do you say to a man who's brought you from pigtails to perfume? It, it's It's weirdly sexual. Eee. But it's got that kind of child molestation quality to it. I, uh, it, it, it yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so our next email. Let's see. Yeah, let's turn to allegory, shall we? Well, yeah. Let, let's see. Let's see if we can get away from sex by talking about Dracula. This uh, this, <laughs> this email is from Logan Hoffman. He says, "I just wrapped up a listen of your podcast on allegory, and the one book that kept screaming in my head was Dracula, Dracula, Dracula." Actually, to correct you, Logan, I think that book is just called Dracula. I know you guys don't have a high opinion of the novel, but I don't think it can be argued that it hasn't been picked apart. The thing of it is, Stoker wasn't a great author. I don't think he would have had the inclinations to have symbolism, i.e. wooden stakes being phallic, Lucy's death being gang rape, etc. He just wanted to write a horror novel. I'd argue that Dracula is not about sex at all, which isn't a popular opinion. Whatever sexual elements that are present are blatantly out there. I've included an article below written by Elizabeth Miller, a well-known academic of the novel and pretty much appears in any vampire special the History Channel shows. She's done (laughs) annotated editions of the book, among other things. Um, We will link to that article. I will say I read the abstract. I did not read the entire article. I'm sorry. Once again, I read it a week ago, and I've forgotten it, so I do apologize, Logan. Uh, 
boy, I'm just useless this January. I, I think <laughs> I think Logan is right in that a lot of and and uh, Miller is also right here that that a, a lot of readings of that book overplay the sexual element. I think he, I think they're both going too far in saying it's not about sex at all. There's too much there. I don't think you have to be a Freudian to believe that that Stoker is doing something unconscious there. Uh, right. And I mean if you're being a proper Freudian, I mean the intent to be sexual doesn't have to be there for it to be sexual, right? Right. But I, I do th- I would I would agree that, that that book is not only about sex, maybe even primarily oh, about sex. Yeah, yeah. That I'll agree with. Yeah. I mean you've also got you've also got this fear of devolution that's very common in, in Victoria I was gonna say Vietnam. Man, it has been a long time since we did a podcast. Uh, in Victorian era novels, this fear of devolution is very important. And I, I, you know, there's that, there's the fear of the foreigner. I mean, it's in some ways it is the quintessentially Victorian novel. When you talk to Dracula, you must whip it. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That, that word has been colonized, man. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) We we have another email from, uh, another, we have an email from Jordan Poss. Uh, which I'm, right. I'm going who, to attempt to summarize. A faithful listener and also follows me on Twitter and uh, probably, you know, retweets too much of what I do. But it's flattering, so keep it up, Jordan. And he's from Rabin County, home of uh, Tallulah Gorge. There you go. I wonder, I wonder, Jordan, if, if the great Walinda is a hero of yours, as he is of mine. <laughs> Um, he has moved away from Rabin County and has I always identified, he says, with the Swiss mercenaries longing for a hillbilly Nostos. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and he, I think I'm the one who mentioned Mad Men. Um, and and he, he brings up Don Draper's pitch for the Kodak Carousel, um, uh, which gives a completely wrong etymology for nostalgia and has bugged him ever since. Oh, I had forgotten that, but he's right. A strange form of nostalgia y'all didn't mention is, oh man, German words. Ostalgie, I'm sorry, I don't speak German. Um, it means East, and it is nostalgia for the lost East German state, and it has spawned quite a few movies. Goodbye Lenin and Klein Rupen Forever being the two I've seen. He's seen, not me. Yeah. I, I wonder I wonder how close that is to, like, the uh, Southern nostalgia for the antebellum South. Nah, that's, that, that's not a bad comparison. He he's interested in this because it is pitched between seriousness and irony, whereas his opinion is that mm-hmm. seven, uh, the nostalgia for the 70s and 80s in this country are full tilt toward irony, and nostalgia for the 50s is full tilt toward seriousness. But this nostalgia, nostalgia. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't, like I said, I don't do German. This is this is halfway in between. I wonder. I wonder how much it's connected to metamodernism. To to point backwards to yet another of our episodes. Uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, irony and seriousness? Irony and sincerity, I suppose I should say in uh, nostalgia. Well, I mean, I, I think part of the picture, and I mean, I, you know, I'm still kind of working with this. I don't have a fully developed theory yet. But when you have nostalgia for an era for an era characterized by its self-aware irony, you're going to have enough recursion there that it's going to be some kind of different phenomenon. That, that's about as far as I've gotten thinking about it. But I, I think you're right that when nostalgia points towards an era as self-aware and as self-conscious as the 90s, 
uh, something weird's going to happen. Yeah, and he connects that to depression nostalgia. Ah, okay, okay. And nostalgia for the Great Depression, by the way, not my own nostalgia for my personal depression. Right, I, I assumed we were talking about, you know, Grapes of Wrath, not... Yeah, who who doesn't want to live in a universe where that turtle gets run over by the <laughs> the eighteen wheeler? He's also curious to know if any of us have read Francis Spufford's unapologetic "Why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense." He read it nope. recently after Alan Jacobs boosted for it online. It's a controversial book, apparently, and though there was plenty I disagreed with, I have not dis- I was not disappointed. and have not stopped thinking about it. If any of you have read it, I'd be interested in hearing your take on it. Or, like good news for anxious Christians, it may make a great discussion episode for all of you. Huh, we might take it on if if we can find it. Yeah, I haven't read it. I'm sure we can. In, I'm sure we can find it, Nathan. I don't think it's wildly out of print. Well, no, I mean, like if we can find it inexpensively. I mean, I, I've told you where I teach English, right? <laughs> he also says, and I, uh, he says, congratulations to Grubs on the new baby, and his wife and he are expecting their first in March. So, yeah, congratulations, Jordan. And Grubs, I suppose. Oh yeah, and Grubs too. Yeah, yeah. But I've already told Grubs congratulations. So. What's, what's next, Nathan? All right. This is from Alex Poulos, who is the one who is always correcting my Greek lore on the uh, blog. And I, I called him out in a recent episode, and he did respond, oh, listener. I thought, I thought to post this on the blog, but the show notes don't appear to be there. As Nathan demanded I meddle, here are my thoughts. Regarding the linguistic question, I can't think of something more readily understandable than cultural nostalgia. Uh, If you want one long Greek word, because what academic doesn't, then you could say koino nostalgia, shared nostalgia. I also like Edenic pathos or Edenic eros, longing or passion. Alexander the Great was was described as having felt a deep pathos that kept him going farther and farther. All right. Uh, Alex then goes on to talk about the fact that although the word doesn't, doesn't appear until the 17th century, certainly the theme... Uh, is is something that appears in literature before then. He f- nods to uh, the Odyssey, which is a great story of homecoming and of longing to come home. Uh, he points to some moments both in Hesiod's Works and Days uh, and Virgil's Eclogues, although he wants to quibble with us ab- about some of the uh, genre claims we made there, but I won't worry about that too much right now. I do want to get to the end of his email because I thought this was interesting. One final instance is the platonic descent and ascent of the soul, which is viewed as a voyage and homecoming. In fact, they even allegorize the Odyssey to make their point. This makes its way into the Christian tradition through the early fathers and, of course, Augustine, whose, quote, longing for rest in God, close quote, is as much platonic as biblical as all the best theology is emoticon winky thanks again for the great episode this is one of my favorites this semester all the best to you all especially david and the new baby what do you think michael about that platonic point that he makes i I think it makes a great deal of sense and i I think i don't know how if we use the word but it made me think of that william wordsworth poem ode to ode to uh oh man oh the uh the one about (laughs) our, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting yeah we did a whole episode on it you guys yeah, I know, I know. Now now that you set it up that way, I can't think of the word son of a gun. Anyway, It'll appear in the show notes. Anyway, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if we if we if, if we use the term nostalgia when we when we did that episode, but I, I think right. that, that sense is really there explicitly in that poem. 
in Intimations of Immortality. That's the name of the poem. Yeah, yeah, but it, oh, it's Coleridge that has a ode on something, right? Well, dejection, dejection. That's right. That's what I was trying to reach for, but you're right. Intimations of Immortality is the Wordsworth poem. That, that is the one I was thinking of. Very good. All I, right. I just want to point out, you can tell Alex is a classic scholar because he spells Virgil with an E. Yes, indeed. <laughs> hey, what's this? What's this Greek uh, Greek phrase he signs his email with? Oh, in alto. Uh, oh gosh, I, I didn't know you asked me to translate this. I mean, it's a it's a reflexive pronoun with a preposition before it. So I mean, woodenly translated, it is uh, in his own. So I'm going to guess it's in his own hand. Gotcha. And Alex, you are free to write in and tell me that I've buggered that as well because my Greek is so rusty that there's more rust than iron there. Your Greek, Michael, go on to the next email. I can't do Greek this early in the morning. Your Greek is better than my German. This is this is from Charlie Stanley. <laughs> your Sta- Spanish is worse than your English, you ignorant wretch. <laughs> this is from Charlie Stanley, who I assume is not the uh, famous preacher Charles Stanley. Although, although one can hope. <laughs> you'll be happy to know this is neither a critique nor a criticism. Rather, it is Yay. a commiseration. During the H.P. Lovecraft episode, David Grubbs made a comment about disliking the History Channel's Ancient Aliens TV show. I, too, am outraged by this show, uh, enraged by this show's careless combination of pseudoscience, pseudohistory, and straight-up fiction into something they dare to call history. I am writing in to share with you an excellent work by a man named Chris Wright that systematically catalogs the show's errors and outright deceptions. It is thoroughly researched, well-produced, very informative, and nearly three hours long. I share it in the hopes that you and your listeners will learn as much from it as I did. Ironically, ancient aliens did end up teaching me some real history only by enraging me enough to seek out the actual history behind their claims. And that, well, that, web, that website is ancientaliensdebunked.com. I've never yeah, seen we, ancient aliens. Yeah, we can put that in the show notes. This is one where I wish we had Danny here. I thought he was a big fan of that show. He, he is not only a big fan, he actually uses clips from, from it in his freshman composition classes. Oh, Danny. Oh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things. I mean, I and I'm going to get in trouble no matter what I compare this to. But I mean, a website debunking ancient aliens strikes me as something along the lines of a website dedicated to everything that Glenn Beck distorts in a week. And I realize his show's off the air. The echoes are still distorting things. <laughs> I don't know. Have you never spent an afternoon reading about how this or that commentator is incredibly dishonest and wrong? Um, I have, but usually they have had at least some, uh, something resembling public credibility. Whereas I can't think of any time that I've seen ancient aliens nodded to except as a punchline. Somebody must take that show seriously. Well, I, that, that, that doesn't tell me anything about the universe, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unless your basic thesis is there are stupid people in this universe, in which case I've known that longer than you have. That is my starting premise, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Michael, this next one I'm actually curious to hear the answer to myself, so why don't you go on to Drew. This is from Drew Vant Land, and uh, I'm sure I've got that wrong. I've never – there's an apostrophe in that middle name, so – uh, I've I've listened to your entire back catalog of wonderful episodes many multiple times, except for a couple on books still on my reading list where I was worried about spoilers. In particular, I've noticed and appreciated Michael's careful music selections, which complement the topics at hand. However, I'm still baffled by the presence of the Nico Case tune. It's called um, 
It's called People Got a Lot of Nerve that serves as the theme song for many episodes. What significance do those lyrics have for your overall project as Christian humanists? I feel like I'm missing something. The most I can make of it is that an elephant never forgets. It's suggestive <laughs> right. of, of memory, a cultural faculty, which is vital for a classical education. What's going on there? Wouldn't it make more sense for you to play, you know, something along the lines of God's Not Dead by the Newsboys? Okay, let's talk about Nico Case. <laughs> the song is about um, what it appears to be about on the surface, which is it's about uh, animals going crazy and killing people in zoos and circuses. And and clearly she's commiserating with these animals. It has nothing to do with our project. That I, <laughs> I picked that song um, from a list of, uh, what do you call it, rights-free music. That, that, yeah, that, that, yeah. We can use that song commercially even without maybe it's just non-commercially right. without having right. to worry about the rights behind it for yeah, the pod safe music is the term that i usually see and and so i looked at a list of these and i knew and liked that song and plus it has that great chimey guitar at the beginning mm-hmm. and, and so that is why i picked that song it has nothing to do with our project other than it's kind of rocking um i i <laughs> you know it's funny though it'll come up on my uh ipod sometimes and i'll think my sh- our show has come on because it, those <laughs> opening those opening oh, yeah, I, are no, so I, I, I had that experience. I, I I I was eating at some you know little lunch place in <laughs> Athens, and that tune came on. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're playing our podcast. <laughs> oh, that's right. Nico Case didn't write that for our show. I wish she had. Although maybe she should have. I, that, that's all I'm saying. Our uh, our listeners will no doubt have noticed that we do not switch the music up anymore. That is because I began to worry after 200 episodes or whatever about copyright issues. So, mm-hmm. so that, that's why, that's why the song stays the same. The song remains the same, I guess right, is the way right. to say it. But no, it doesn't have anything to do with our project. I just thought it sounded cool. Mm-hmm. By the way, if yeah. some listener would like to record a song specifically for our podcast, uh, I would love to hear it. Make sure it has an introduction of about 30 seconds so that I don't have to loop anything. Yeah. And, I, and I'll just go ahead and say that, I mean, the presence of that song makes me seem a lot more aware of pop culture than I really am, so oh. I don't have any problem with it. Although, be careful, Nathan. That song's five years old now. Yeah, that's about ten years more recent than most <laughs> of the stuff I'm aware of. <laughs> Thank you for uh, asking about the music, Drew. I think this is the – no, we, we had a we had an email once about – when our C.S. Lewis episode used a poor old Lou song, and a, a, a listener wrote in to let us know that he um, – he he got my joke and I appreciate that. But, well, there you go, there you go. And then of course when we did the Ghostbusters theme, I mean that's a a little meta commentary on music copyright in its own right. Wait, how's that? Oh, because uh, uh, Ray Parker Jr. got sued by Huey Lewis for ripping off "I Want a New Drug." But I didn't do anything clever, right? I didn't like make a mash. Oh up the no, 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 no! But I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is, I mean, we're just as likely to get sued by Huey Lewis as by Ray Parker Jr. for that one. <laughs> Gotcha. You you know it's not only a ripoff of I Want a New Drug. It's also a ripoff of the uh, the song Soul Finger. Ah, oh, that's right. That's right. You've told me that before, and I forgot because I'm getting old and memory's the third thing to go with age. And to to loop this back around, I became aware of the Ghostbusters Soul Finger connection through an, another person's intro music podcast. Podcast intro music for this, the Sound Opinions <laughs> podcast uses Soul Finger, and I thought, is this a weird live version of Ghostbusters? Why are they yelling? Uh-huh. Why okay. are they yelling Soul Finger instead of Ghostbusters? <laughs> Very good. Well, see, there you go. We've had a mini uh, pop music history lesson. Well, moving on. Uh, Ryan Wells writes to us. I have recently begun listening to your show, and I just finished episode two about John Calvin. 
In the episode, you spend a little bit of time talking about the doctrine of predestination. I have never known enough about predestination to form my own beliefs about it, and I've only heard it preached on cursorily. Are there any resources you recommend to help me, A, study what the scriptures say that forms the basis, basis for defending and challenging predestination, and B, learn what the doctrine actually means? So, Michael, you are, uh, of the two of us, uh, more proximate to Calvinism, so won't you take the first swing at this? Uh, I don't have any such resources. I wish Grubbs were here. I'm sure he does have some. Oh, I'm sure he does, yeah. Yeah, a um, couple things that I would say, Ryan. Uh, one would be, uh, as, as far as a pretty strong book uh, critiquing it, uh, Roger Olson wrote a book called Against Calvinism. Uh, I'll admit that I didn't finish the book, but I did read about the first third of it. He looked and at the he, cover in the bookstore, and it looked pretty good. Come on now, Michael. Come on. I started reading it, and a semester started. Give me a break. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's a pretty nicely argued, I mean, fairly accessible introduction to Arminian critiques of a very, very strong, what he would call double predestinarian argument. As far as arguments in favor of it, um, I'm trying to think of, you know, some good resources on that end. Uh, And honestly, I tend not to remember those as well because I have problems with a lot of formulations of the doctrine, so I'm more interested in critiques of it. Um, I mean, Oddly enough, I mean, you know, Calvin doesn't spend a whole lot of time on that particular doctrine in the Institutes, which might come as a surprise to folks who haven't read the Institutes. Uh, So really, if you have an edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion with an index, you can read it straight from John Calvin fairly easily. Uh, Other than that, I mean, what I would recommend is some good scholarly commentaries on Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians 1, of course, being one of the primary texts the folks go to when they want to talk about predestination. So, uh, you know, being a, a biblical studies dude in a former life myself, I think that's a good place to go. Maybe I'm we'll have to... maybe we'll have Grubbs uh, post something on the show notes. Yeah, that's a pretty good idea. Or even as just a blog post, I think I might have to like restore his account because he hasn't posted in a spell. But <laughs> <laughs> he used to post a saint story every week. Yeah, yeah. That was back and, when we all posted, though. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have time to write things for free. Oh, listen to you, Dr. Pharma, getting all important on I'm, us. I'm, t- I'm too big for the for the blog, although not for the podcast, at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too big for my britches. <laughs> well, anyway, I want to uh, read this last one, although it is fairly lengthy. At, uh, I want to read all of it because it nods both to me and to Danny Anderson. Uh, this is from Jonathan Lampley. Greetings from an avid listener. My name is Jonathan Lampley. I'm a graduate from Emmanuel College, where Dr. Gilmore works, although I never had the pleasure of studying in one of his classes. I learned about your podcast thanks to Dr. Gilmore posting the link to the C.S. Lewis episode. And being an avid fan of his, much to the distaste of Michael. No, hang on a second. I don't don't have that big of a problem. Now, Tolkien I don't like, but I I, I probably like Lewis less than any Christian college English professor in the country, but I would not say I don't like him. And certainly not that other people liking him fills me with distaste. Come on, let's not not warp my position here. Anyway... 
Uh, I just had to listen, he continues. From there, I started listening to episode one. I'm sorry for that. And have, for the most part, listened to about 75% of the episodes. Me too. (laughs) There are far too many episodes. I like to list them all. But it made my day when y'all spent three episodes on Star Wars. Thank you guys for doing the podcast. It has stretched my mind to do many of the mundane things in my day, such as exercising, washing dishes, working, and traveling. I've been anxious for the upcoming semester to start because I'm ready for you guys to get back at it. Uh, I'm anxious for us to get back at it, too. But <laughs> man. <laughs> uh, and, and listeners, I mean, you know, if you've got me on Facebook, you've gotten some intimations of just all the poo that has been dumped on me in January, but it just keeps coming. So hopefully February will let us get back into a full recording schedule. Well, I think this, anyway. is, the, this is the third week we were going to start recording. Yeah, it is. And, it is. and Danny couldn't be here today, so, I mean, we almost lost that, too. Right, right. And and next week, I'm not going to be here. And Man, it's just... Uh. Anyway, <laughs> back to Mr. Lampley's email. I do not recall this topic used as an episode, but a possible one is to discuss the role of personal reflection, retreat, and daily devotion when it comes to the Christian walk. Pausing real quick, Michael, if I feel like we've done episodes on this. Have we just gotten to that subject matter by means of other head words as as you know almost every listener feedback we get reminds me of an episode i don't remember doing (laughs) (laughs) i'm i I know we did one on asceticism i don't remember doing right that's the one that i'm thinking of i don't remember doing one on personal spirituality i'm not sure i would feel comfortable doing one on personal spirituality oh we could talk about it historically yeah I mean, I've talked about all kinds of stuff I wouldn't talk about personally, but I can talk about the history of it. All right. <laughs> anyway, Lampley continues. I'm sorry, Jonathan. I, I, I said I was going to read your whole email, and it might take us 30 minutes. In my current and past experiences in ministry and church world, countless attendees of church services lack a daily devotion time, which, in my opinion, limits their relationship with God and severely hinders their ability to cope with life's struggles and hardships. I appreciate all your discussions, debates, and disagreements, Dr. Gilmore's dry humor, Michael's sarcasm, David's chillness. Okay, I must admit I also approve of David because he likes Lewis and Tolkien. I mean, come on, what's not to love about these guys? (coughs) (laughs) I talk about your podcast often, thank you, Jonathan, and on my way to finally give it a five-star rating on iTunes per your persistent request at the end of practically every episode. Sorry you did not get this email sooner. I'll just go ahead and note that really, of the four of us who regularly uh, curate these episodes, I'm the only one who begs at the end. It's because I'm afraid to go to iTunes and see what people have written. Actually, Michael, it is, if if you ever get to the point where you say, is it even worth continuing to do this, go read those, because generally people who have written there encourage me to keep recording all right. I figured it was like teaching evaluations where most of them are positive, but all you can think about is the <laughs> negative one. Uh, well, uh, well, and see, that's that's the difference between the way you read those and the way I read those. I, I sort of take a Plato's Crito approach to them. Uh, you know, think not about what the many think, but what the good think. Mel- melancholic, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Back to Lampley. Just a small bio about me. I'm a current student at Regent University pursuing a Master's of Divinity with the end goal of becoming an Air Force chaplain. And yes, I know you guys' stance on the subject. Sorry, Dr. Gilmore. I, I, I believe I've said that military service is honorable enough, 
Um, Honorable enough, a, a glowing recommendation from Nathan Gilmore. <laughs> well, considering how I regard most human occupations. <laughs> it won't send you directly to hell, he says. <laughs> anyway, back to his uh, bio. I am happily married to Rachel, my wife of 11 months, and probably by the time you get you guys get around to reading this email, I will hopefully be holding my newborn son, Alexander William. Give David my regards as well. I will soon follow in his footsteps of late nights, lack of sleep, loud cries, and piles of dirty diapers to change. And actually, listeners, uh, I have seen pictures of uh, Jonathan and Rachel and their youngin seems to be doing well. So congratulations, Jonathan. I love learning motorcycles outdoors and all this theology, Lewis and Tolkien. God bless you guys and hope to meet you all one day, hopefully on this side of eternity. Respectfully, Jonathan Lampley. P.S. If you guys are ever go, if you guys, pardon me, ever go looking for an additional intern, hit me up. I would be thrilled to help the Christian Humanist Radio Network. That's very nice. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And Jonathan, uh, just to give a little bit of my background, I don't know if Danny has ever taught him in a class or not, uh, but he's right. I mean, he's one who never landed in one of his in one of my classes, but. Uh, Emmanuel being the small campus that it is, I was aware of him and he was aware of me and we said howdy in the hall and so on and so forth. So thanks for writing in, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, Michael, let me ask you this. We, uh, and I, I didn't put this in the show notes, so I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, we had a recent uh, Facebook exchange, actually. One of our listeners, Michael Berry, uh, put a link to an, an article about the recent Charlie Hebdo murder is what I will call it, uh, up on our Facebook page, and we kind of had an exchange, you and me and Grubbs, for a spell. Uh, do you want to summarize that, comment on it, or lateral it to me? It was a, it was a from my perspective, the argument we had was about uh, bravery versus heroism. Uh-huh. And I, I think we ended up coming to a similar conclusion, which is that uh, – it is difficult to argue that the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists were not brave in the sense that they had death threats and they continued to do the things that gave them those death threats, but that hero is a word that makes sense within a given community of interpretation, and none of us belong to a community of interpretation that would allow us to call them heroes. Is that is that about accurate? Did we? I think we agreed on that point eventually. Yeah, uh, and I, I think we all agreed up to that point. I took the next step to say that even within a narrative governed by the best of what I would call enlightenment thinking, Charlie Hebdo still is not a hero in any uncomplicated sense. I'm not sure there's such a thing in the real world as a hero in an uncomplicated sense. Oh, I would say that there are some. I, I do think you have to put Charlie Hebdo in the context of... And by the way, Charlie Hebdo, I realize, is not a person but a magazine. We're talking about the cartoonists employed by Charlie Hebdo. Right, so right. if you started typing that angry email to us, just stop. Is that a metonym or the other one? I can never... I can't remember either. But anyway, go ahead, Michael. I'm sorry I cut you off. I think you have to put that magazine in the context of France's long history of anti-clericalism. I, I, I think I think the things they they published probably wouldn't have been published by any even quasi respectable magazine in the United States, but we we lack that anti clerical history that France has had since at least the Revolution. I, I'm not excusing anything in terms of the I, I think very <laughs> offensive cartoons they've published, but I, I'm you know I can recognize they're brave. All right. 
Uh, and listeners, I bring that up, first of all, to invite you once again to join our Facebook page. It's called The Christian Humanist Podcast, uh, easy enough to find on Facebook, but also to thank Michael Berry, who usually doesn't email to the podcast, so he doesn't often appear on these episodes, but he is always posting interesting and thought-provoking articles for us to tee up on the Facebook page. So I'd encourage you to go over there, jump in the conversation, uh, you know, throw a couple punches at me. I'm probably wrong. (laughs) Usually. At least when you disagree with me. (laughs) Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, So that is the Facebook page. Uh, On the blog, I want to thank Robert Pankey, who is a friend of mine. Uh, We've actually only met in person once, but we've been on each other in some sort of online context for about 11 years now, and he is a frequent commentator on posts that I write as well as some of the episode notes that we post. So I want to thank him for doing that. All of you who have posted reviews on iTunes that weren't, you know, mean, uh, I want to thank you all as well. Uh, Michael, are there any other avenues of feedback that we're neglecting here? Because I I don't want to leave too many people out. Those are the main ones, but just a reminder, if you do want to be included in in a feedback episode, email is the way to guarantee that. Right, right. It's definitely got the best odds. And the email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, and you can find that in the right margin of the website. Uh, well, Michael, next week, and once again, my, my bad luck in 2015 uh, hasn't relented really since the ball dropped, um, or since the balls were deflated, however you want to play that one. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I probably will not be recording our next episode. It'll probably be you and Danny Anderson. Uh, what are we teeing up for next episode? We will be talking about Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, play No Exit, which I'm sure I will aggravatingly call We Clow instead. <laughs> because why wouldn't you? Well, also, No Exit is not a good translation of of that title. So this is not just me being aggravatingly Francophiliac. <laughs> So not it's just, not, not just me. Yeah. Right <laughs> so you're going to say it's, it's slightly more complex than mere, you know, irritation. Right. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, Michael, thank you for jumping on and uh, taking on some of these listener emails with me. Uh, this show is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. And perhaps one day we'll also include Jonathan Lampley, who can say. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, from whom we heard earlier. You can find us at ChristianHumanist.org on the net. You can find us on Facebook. You can also email us at TheChristianHumanist at gmail.com. You can also go over to iTunes, where every time you give us that lovely five-star rating, more listeners will be directed to us when they search for things that they didn't know were related to the Christian Humanist podcast. Also, I think an angel, I think an angel gets its wings every time. <laughs> nice, nice. So, listeners, uh, this is how we're kicking off 2015. Not with a bang, but a whimper. <laughs> Hobbling to the starting line. <laughs> And so, in behalf of Michael Farmer and all the other good people at the Christian Humanist Radio Network, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. 